Welcome everyone to Social Work Stories, the podcast. I'm Mim Fox and I'm joined, as usual, by the wonderful Liz Murphy. Hello, Liz. Hello, Mim. Hello, everyone. Liz, it's really hot in Australia at the moment. Middle of summer. And today, we it's particularly hot because we are recording in Wollongong. Goddess country. My Goddess home. country. Mm. Just outside of Sydney. And uh, uh, we're sitting here sweltering. And I know that by saying that, we are actually making most of our audience around the world jealous right now. Let's just amp it up just a wee bit. Yes. Perhaps after we finish this recording, we could just walk, I don't know, maybe... 100 metres across the road and have a dip in the Pacific Ocean. A meander to the beach. Mm. I love it. That's exactly what we'll do. But in the meantime, we're firstly going to listen to a story, which is a child protection story, from a social worker in the UK. Uh, Justin Stesh, our um, producer, was recently in London doing some fantastic interviews with social workers over there. And uh, we have a really great child protection story to air. Uh, and I guess a little difference with this story as to some of the others that we've heard is that this social worker is actually a bit regretful around the case and how it went. He, um, it's not a celebratory story, although in some ways it could be seen as having a happy ending. Mm. He actually... Being a more senior practitioner, he's reflecting on his experience and what he learnt and he's kind of seeing that actually it didn't sit completely well with him. And I think it was, I think it was seen through the lens of an older man who's now, I'm guessing, but I suspect a parent. Right. And what he was like as a 24-year-old to be faced with the prospect of assuming the care of a baby and what that was like for him Um, but you know what I really appreciate these stories because it's real right yeah we all want we all do this in the privacy of our own heads but I think it's really nice that we actually get to hear it out loud and look at a case or a story and think about well you know this was who this is who I am now this is possibly what I would do differently, but I also acknowledge that was that was a big, big deal for any social worker, no matter what age, but especially for someone three months out of graduating and 24, not a parent himself. Yes. So I really appreciate him taking us to that, that time in his life. I think actually if we only sat with the celebrations... Uh, and the good news stories of social work, we wouldn't be true to our profession. No, and when I work with students, I've often heard them say, I really like it when you tell us about the time when things went completely wrong in what happened with your work as a social worker. So, yeah, I think it's it's real. It's very real. we need to share them. Real and gritty. That's what we're all about here. Real and gritty. (laughs) That's our new catchphrase. (laughs) We're going to get real and gritty now. Excellent. Let's hear from our social worker. Yeah, so one case that sticks out in particular is after I'd um, been recently kind of qualified as a social worker. 
So I'd only been in social work for three months. We had an urgent referral in about a mum who had, we knew she was pregnant, but had um, kept her kind of pregnancy hidden um, from children's services, hadn't really engaged in midwives services. Um, and there was concerns around her substance misuse. Um, she was on a kind of methadone program, but then also there was concerns that she was still using uh, heroin illicitly. Um, so what the mum did was um, she'd had previous children removed. So what the mum did was went and had her baby in an, another city about 120 miles away. Looking back on it now, I can understand why if she'd had previous children removed, she wanted to try and evade or try to um, avoid children's services. But she had the, we had to put a national notification out to say if this lady presents at hospital, um, please get in touch with children's services. And um, luckily um, they did. So, so one of the pivotal moments was A, speaking to this mum over the phone for the first time explaining the process of what I was going to be doing in terms of traveling to the city where she was and um, taking her child from her in hospital to a foster, case, foster placement in the city where we were working and where she, she lived. But then also, um, then if that didn't go to plan, what, what potentially the consequences could be. So I, the, the thing that sticks out for me is, this, is the drive up to the hospital for 120 miles so it took us about two and a half hours three hours um, to drive to the hospital find the hospital and things and then actually be at the hospital having conversations with the mum and also the father of the child who was there explaining the reasons why we were doing such actions and working in a collaborative way because they agreed and understood which was good but the drive up there as much as you can prepare for things and also the conversations we'd had with the family beforehand, kind of preparing them as well. You never know how someone's going to react. And it was a very scary thing for me to be doing because I was still fairly young at the time. I was probably only about 24, 25, which, yeah, you know, you're still an adult. But A, the, the fact that this mum and dad trusted me to take their newborn baby, who was literally maybe one or two days old, um, as I remember, and then driving back um, to the city I was working with with this baby and I had a family support worker with me supporting him but feeding a, a baby who's literally a couple of days old withdrawing or had had symptoms of withdrawing from kind of um, heroin um, crying and obviously not understanding what's going on and then leaving this baby with a foster carer as well it was a, it's something that's definitely kind of stuck out in my mind is I think hopefully practice has maybe moved on since then because this is as I say at least well what was, yeah nine years ago but it, it was one of those moments where I guess the seriousness of the job I learned it very quickly um, but also again what I learned from that was is trying to be as open and honest with people as, as, as best you can be as well in terms of explaining the reasons for your actions but also kind of the processes and, and, and kind of doing it in a respectful way as well um, and not letting it 
get to a point where um, you're antagonizing or you're judging the person because again as I said earlier I think you have to see these people as people and obviously making decisions that they think is are best for them and their child at that time and trying to respectfully say, say and work with them to say let's let's really think about this and think about the future of your your child as well and things so so it's quite a bit of a baptism of fire um, and that was quite a, a pivotal moment I think for me When I listen to this social worker speaking, what is really striking me is the lack of choice in this scenario. We've talked about child protection being a bit of a theme in coming episodes, and um, there really is a dilemma here, I think, for social work practice in the lack of choice. In this situation, you've almost got a reflective situation happening. You've got the mum who has left her home and travelled to a hospital far away, three hours drive away, to have her baby in the hope that this baby isn't going to be removed and she's not going to be found. You've got a social worker whose mandate is to remove children and that social worker has been told to drive for three hours to find this mother where she's giving birth to remove that child. I can't help but think when I'm listening to this that the two of them are feeling trapped. That is such an interesting take. You're right, there are a lot of parallels that are going on. I went straight to what were those three hours like in the ride up there? Yeah. Three months into his career, 24, no children of his own. What goes through your mind, your first assumption of care? And then to actually be holding this baby, to listen to him. As you were saying, he's holding a baby, perhaps maybe the first baby he's ever held, and one that's withdrawing. That baby would have been crying for that full three hours back. So distressed. Yeah. So distressed. And what was going through his mind? How do you prepare for this situation? When we started that story, he was talking a lot about the process of child protection work, wasn't he? And then it started to get a little bit more reflective. It did. Actually, uh, Justin asks a really good question that gets him to kind of go more into that moment, more into the detail. How about we pick it up there and then we'll come back and talk about what happened. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear that. Obviously, it's a huge mm-hmm. moment and, and a, a full-on experience for anyone. Can you mm-hmm. take me into that moment? What yeah. are you thinking? What do you feel yeah. like in that space? I remember going into the because the, going into the hospital ward. Um, we sat in um, a room, probably no bigger than the room we're in here. So, like, what is this? Six feet, seven feet by? It was probably smaller, and the mum was obviously very teary. Um, the dad, I seem to remember, he was almost like a, um, he was, he was almost like a, I remember him as almost like a kind of godfather character. He had a big black long overcoat on, and I remember when I first saw him, I thought, okay, he, I think he's going to be quite intimidating, but also quite, uh, he's going to be quite aggressive. But actually, when we started talking to to him, he was, 
he he understood because he, he was unfortunately a, a heroin user as well and so so he he knew the seriousness of a his own issues but also didn't want his own he was a his daughter um to have similar kind of issues so he understood i think for the mum speaking to her and reflecting she'd been through this not necessarily this experience of her child being removed directly from hospital but she had be had let's say previous children removed so I mean, the main thing that sticks out for me is what I'm thinking is they're not going to go along with this. They're going to um, they're going to say no, and then the only thing I had as a backup, if, if they did say no, was to call the police and hope that then the police would um, hear where the children's services are coming from and then actually do a, a, a what's called a kind of emergency protection or police protection. Um, and also, I think the other thing that kind of sticks out in my mind is then the moment when they agreed. They here in um, the UK we have something called Section Twenty. They signed an agreement under Section Twenty for the child to go with me and the family support worker. And I, it was, to be honest, it was quite a scary moment because then you're walking out of a hospital with a baby in a, uh, uh, a, a car seat and getting back in a taxi to drive them 120 miles away and the realization of okay this, i'm the sole person at the moment or me and this family support worker are the sole people to look after this baby to get them somewhere that they're hopefully going to be safer um so so yeah so that was quite a monumental thing in terms of and i didn't have children of my own at the time um I had a young niece and nephew, but they were, I hadn't really, really seen them when they were newborn babies, and also just the, the, the tiny baby. I mean, like I say, the, when a baby was born with with oral symptoms, and also kind of um, babies who are born to, or sometimes born with, kind of withdrawal aren't a healthy weight. So there, she was a very small baby, and things. So uh, yeah, so. I remember it. Yeah, it was quite a scary moment, but also a bit of relief as well that it hadn't, it had gone as well as it could be. Uh, but also, the monumental kind of impact of that of actually taking a child from their parent to a stranger that's going to care for them as well. It, it kind of made me realise it's, it's not easy. It's never easy, um, and I think sometimes that is some managers and social workers I've spoken to um, seem to think it's, a, it's something to be celebrated but actually um, yeah I think sometimes it's something that um, yeah it, it, it does stick with you I think definitely and that re talking about it there makes me realize how vividly I can kind of picture it as well yeah so hopefully I've explained that as well as I can listening to this story there's a tension here for me between a sense of relief and having what the social worker called monumental impact in the life of this family the social worker talked about how some managers would see this as a celebration and you can imagine the high-fiving 
when after that long drive they come back to the office and are there with their colleagues. Uh, but I think we actually need to just sit for a minute with what celebration looks like in this context. The social worker definitely did not feel celebratory. But I, if you were the manager, I'm sort of putting myself in the manager's position now. When that young social worker came back, 24 years old, came back to the office having successfully assumed care for a newborn, such a long drive, they were isolated out there, didn't know who they were going to meet when they got there to, at the other end. And this social worker has come back unscathed. Yeah. There's been no physical assault. There's no been no verbal assault even. Actually, on the surface, this is a celebration because there are a number of awful things that could have happened to this young professional in this situation. Instead of that, though, the social worker's not sitting with that, are they? They're sitting with the monumental impact on the family. And I would suspect the he would have been thinking about the intense and complex grief that he witnessed these were parents that actually wanted to take this baby home like he talked about the distress of the mother i could imagine what that actually looked like it wouldn't have been just a couple of tissues worth there would have been i would imagine a lot of high level of distress and probably crying and yelling out he would have seen that and he would have felt that there, this isn't anything to celebrate. That's this, right. These parents had hoped that this was a baby they were going to be able to take home and yet it was another one that they were unable to. I don't think any celebration, Mim. I know. At all. But, you know, from the manager's perspective, a lot less paperwork for sure. <laughs> a lot less paperwork but also the safety of their staff. Totally. And you can't downplay that. But I do think there is something here. The social worker talked a lot about being open and honest and respectful with the parents. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to have a conversation about the languaging of honesty in these difficult, really difficult conversations, right? Um, An emotionally laden scenario. I know, and that's, I wanna be a fly on the wall for this one. Yeah. Because uh, this young social worker got from being in the middle of a storm of grief. Yeah. And somehow he was then able to acknowledge it and then reach that point, that sweet point, where they were all on the same side in relation to the health of this baby, the life of this baby. I'm, I, I, I want to know how and what that sounded like. To have gone from, I thought that the father was going to prevent me from taking this baby, and yet he realised that he wanted a better life for his daughter. What was the conversation like that took place so let's break this down for our listeners because you and i weren't there we weren't but we can imagine let's imagine let's imagine it and i think also let's think about some of the really clear principles that in social work communication we need to come from okay so maybe we can start by sitting with that emotional locus Hmm. where the family was so it's about hearing that story 
uh, sometimes in the chaos of something like an assumption of care, there isn't a lot of time or space to be sitting with people's stories. But I think that initial hearing of the story and the validating of the emotions of the parents would have been absolutely essential. Absolutely. Absolutely. To have listened to the the hopes yes. that they had of hoped what was going to happen was different to what has taken place before. What it's like to actually have their baby taken away. He would have had to have listened to that in a supportive way. That's right. I think once you've done that, it's then easier to find what you just called a sweet connecting point, right? Because he did talk about how the joint vision for the future of this child was actually a connecting point. Yes. Especially with the father. Yes. And I think um, you can't do that. You can't find a connecting point with another person in that emotionally raw state unless you've acknowledged the state they're in, right? Like Mm. I think that's almost asking an impossibility. Mm. Well, that's when he would have actually come up against outrage... Um, greater resistance. Anger. Anger. Yeah. That he didn't would mean that he's actually listened to their story and borne witness to their pain in such a way that they felt respected and acknowledged as parents. That's exactly right, as parents. Not as drug users, right? Not as addicts, but as parents. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's that's one of the key key points here, um, and I think also just coming back to that, we often talk about building rapport. I think that can become a bit trite in social work education. I think sometimes students can come away with a feeling that if you just offer someone a cup of tea or a tissue and uh, make a comment about the wallpaper in their lounge room, that you've now built rapport. And I think actually what we're talking about here is a real process of rapport building where you're actually connecting not as one vulnerable person and one professional, but as actually two individuals in this world. Yeah, that's really well said. Oh, thanks, Liz. No, that is, that is, because it is. It's, it's about listening in such a deep and heartfelt way that it feels like it's more than a professional exchange, right? That this social worker is actually present now at one of the most, and he calls it, pivotal moments of those parents and that baby's life. Yeah. And they must have felt that, that he, he had a sense of that and that he was also going to care for that baby to be able to walk away without you know without as much resistance as what he had anticipated they must have felt that that hopefully their baby was in safe hands oh they must have they must have felt that baby was self in safe hands in order to hand the baby over and then to know that that baby was going to now be driven for nearly three hours Mm. absolutely I think we need to just honour that social worker in that moment for a second because although he's not seeing this as a celebration, I think it's the social work practice that we can celebrate, if not the outcome, right? Mm. Mm. 
I think so. And three months into his <laughs> profession. I'm like, there's no way I could have imagined myself in that seat and done that. So let's talk about that, Liz, because he uses the phrase baptism of fire, yeah. which I know is a little trigger for you. It so is a trigger for me. And I wouldn't mind a dollar for every time I've heard social workers talk about events that have happened in their career that have been like a baptism of fire. And as an educator, I I really worry about it. And I, I really, this is part for me, this is part of why I am so passionate about this podcast, because I think that we need to support people so that they feel like oh well this is just part of the profession you know that we we have these series of baptism by fire and we survive them and hopefully we learn enough from them that we can then kind of you know develop a a better way of doing it in the in the future or, or a practice around it things like this to hear the languaging that people use in these pivotal moments would help of course it would and that's why I'm hoping, you know, like there will be some, at some stage we'll get to hear a little bit more detail about the actual languaging um, because I know that when I'm working with people who are new in their career, often they will, if they hear a great statement that someone said, oh, I said A, B, C and D to this client patient um, at this particular time, I will, li- I will see people literally write down those statements. Yes opening lines for when you walk into a room where someone's you know just about to pass away or where you're going to assume the care of a of a baby even things like how do you introduce yourself in the circumstances that you find yourself like things like that I'm hoping that we can hear more and more so that people can add it to their tool belt yeah But also I think um, we've spoken quite a bit about the social work tribe, which is now, you know, we've brought everyone around the world around our fire um, to share stories. And I think what we're doing is we're building a community of practice, right, a community of practitioners. And what I'm hoping and what I'm almost sending out as a message on this podcast is don't let your new grad colleagues be in this situation where they have to have a baptism of fire. This, this idea that you sink or swim, why should anyone sink? Yeah, you're right. That is so right. That 24-year-old social worker needed to have a more senior social worker there with him to have actually role modelled, this is how you do it. I mean, yes, okay, so he survived it. Yes. Fantastic. But wouldn't it have been better to have actually had someone demonstrate through an experience of having had these conversations before how you actually assume the care of a baby in these circumstances. That's exactly right. I think the idea that you sink or swim, the swimming can happen over a really long period of time. Mm. You don't instantly become the best swimmer in the world after one case. You learn from every single case you do. And the way you learn, what we know is that actually you learn by doing and then processing and talking and being prepared and then you go into the next thing and you're more prepared and you learn again. There's a back and forth that needs to happen. I think as more experienced social workers out there, there is a responsibility that our community of practice has to our new grads, no matter how old those new grads are. I think the other thing I want to say is that we do have a lot of social work students who are mature aged, 
who come into the into the profession at a later point in their lives. But also, Mim, there, there are the people that, you know, as social workers, we know we move around in different work. Yes. Um, so every time you're in a new position, uh, that then that too requires some support and maybe some sharing of languaging that can go on in, the, in this particular area. I think it's really important that we're not tricked by making assumptions about each other. So just because someone has come into the profession at an older age or just because someone seems confident that actually a new graduate might seem really, really confident, but actually that doesn't mean that they don't need to have this mentorship and this learning by example uh, and the practice wisdom of the older social workers that they're working alongside. That we readily offer to our students when they do placements with us. Yeah. And somehow it stops when we graduate. When they're getting paid. Yeah. We stop the shadowing. We stop the um, come and watch me in my practice. Can you watch me do this? I've never done it before and give me some feedback. We actually need to continue to do that in our work. So this right is actually through to retirement. This is actually a challenge, I think, to our mm. global community of practitioners to actually not give up on each other and to keep working with each other in this way so that baptism of fire becomes a thing of the past. Again, I'm I'm totally in agreement. Fantastic. This social worker Liz shared a few stories with us and we really want to thank them for that. But uh, we can't air all of them at this point. There was one question that a police officer posed to this social worker, though, that I think is really important for us to think about, which was, do you think this child will be alive tomorrow if we leave them in their mother's care? The pace of social work can be so fast, and having the space to actually sit and think about that question and the impact on a family by your answer to that question is I think so important. Mm. So we're going to now listen to the social worker talking about the pace of life and the pace of work in this sort of practice and the impact that that can have. And then we'll come back. I think what happens in social work is you have these pivotal moments and then you work with families, you then end your involvement and then you're very quickly onto the next case. You're then onto the next um, moment, or you're onto the next um, piece of work to do. So you don't necessarily get that much time to reflect on the work you've done because there's always something else to do, or there's always another case to do. And I don't think we're sometimes as aware of our success stories. Um, the only way I'm aware of. If, it, if my intervention was really was a success is hopefully we don't have a re-referral or hopefully we don't hear from that family again and I know that might sound harsh but actually it's, it's, it's positive the way I try and talk to families is to say you know hopefully by the end of my intervention or your work with with myself you won't have to see me or another social worker again and that's what we're trying to aim for and that doesn't always work out because of various different things that maybe I bring to the table as a social worker that um, maybe where the family's at or where the young person's at in terms of ready for changes or if it's again not 
possible, but uh, yeah, that was a positive story. Yeah. So Liz, I want to take our episode home by thinking about what that social worker has actually left us with in their story. They've left us with some advice around slowing social work down mm. and look, being a teacher, I am going to put the plug in now for Sean's reflection in action and reflection on action because actually in the heavy pace of social work practice, we often don't take that time to reflect on our practice as we're going along as well as then taking the space for afterwards. And before. And before, absolutely. Can't tell me that that three-hour drive wasn't spent with a little bit of reflecting on what I'm going to be doing. Mm. I would agree with that completely. So thank you to that social worker for highlighting that for everyone. But I feel like, Liz, you and I... We love the slow movement that's happening around the love world it. at the moment. Love it. We love the slow food. We love the slow home. We do. Are, are you thinking that we could actually... I'm thinking there's a place here for coining a phrase. What is it, Min? Slow social work. I love it. Love it. Love it. Slow social work. Phrase coined, people, that we are slowing down our practice now. We have stopped bowing to the organisational pressures of going faster and faster and faster all the time. And we are actually, no matter what point we are in our practice, we are making it an emphasis to actually stop for a second and reflect before we walk into an intervention, while we're there with the vulnerable people that we're working with, and then afterwards to really dig deep and think about the impact, like our social worker said, the monumental impact of the work that we do with these people. So good. I love I it. Love Slow social it. work. And it's related to food too. So, Which you know, always it ticks good. a number of boxes for us, I doesn't it? I feel like it? I can see Slow social work on a T-shirt or a mug. Mim, before we finish up, I want to take a moment to thank all of those people who have taken time to leave us a rating and a written review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you, Dad. This makes a huge difference to us in growing our podcasts and spreading the work. And who would have thought, like, did you know, Mim, that there are people in places like Illinois and Germany who are listening to us? That just blows my mind. I knew they were there. I just didn't know they were listening to us, Liz. (laughs) But I particularly love the review from Tickles and Dimples. Can I just read out just a little bit of it? Can I just say before you do, great username. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it is fantastic. Yep. But what this person has said, where have you been all my life? I am a social worker out of Illinois and I work with high-risk juveniles as a mental health juvenile justice therapist. I chose mental health as a concentration with an emphasis in childhood trauma because I decided long ago that I would dedicate my life to troubled youth. I've been waiting for a case study podcast. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, since 2014, when I was introduced to the world of podcasts. So if you're listening, Tickles and Dimples, please get in touch with us as we would love to interview you for an up-and-coming podcast. But people, if you want to help us out, leave a five-star rating. Well, actually, I probably shouldn't say that. You leave a rating, whatever you think we deserve. No, no, no. Leave any rating you like, but five stars. Because choice is so important to us. Choice is so important. (laughs) So you can choose four 
and a half or five. <laughs> That's right. Um, that would be great. Great. And we also, just to let you know, that we also, you can find us now on Twitter at Social Work Story, Instagram at Social Work Stories Pod, and share a link to episodes in your Facebook newsfeed and with your own social work tribe. We are so contemporary. So what we've just done is actually challenge the notion that social workers are bad at technology. Well, Because look at us, Liz. Well, well, look at our producers. We have Justin and Ben. So I think this is a really good point to say thanks to Justin, Steph. Thank you. And and Ben Joseph for being the most amazing producers and getting us out there, Liz. You and I, we would have just stayed in our slow home forever. We would have just been having these conversations with ourselves. Always. Always. Bye, everyone. See you next time.